Well, um, salam alaikum, peace be upon everyone who is present, um, seen and unseen. Um, before I delve into the topic of my talk, I really have two or three things that I'd like to, to say um, in advance. Um, first of all, what a pleasure it is to be here, and I want to thank um, the Ibn Arabi Society. Um, it's my first experience of an Ibn Arabi Society event, and being here yesterday was an eye-opening experience for me and a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to meet such great people. So thank you to the Society and thank you to all of you, actually, for, for making this such a wonderful event. Um, secondly, I hope that you can all hear me clearly because I can't actually hear myself. All of my sinuses are blocked. Um, so I apologise if I have to cough and sneeze during this. And thirdly... Um, uh, philosophy at the best of times can be um, uh, a bit like banging your head against a wall. And there's very little justification for philosophy on a Sunday morning at 9, 9.40. Um, thank you. <laughs> so yesterday's talks were so engaging, and I hope that this isn't that disengaging. So um, on that note, um, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The, the question of being is one of those... Uh, questions that has beset the history of philosophy. By this term, philosophers have meant a variety of things and throughout the ages, its related questions have given rise to distinct schools of philosophy, each betraying problems of an ultimate and perennial concern. In its simplest form, the question of being asks, what is it that is really real? Parmenides, who is known to the Western intellectual tradition as the philosopher of being, believed that non-being, non-existence, simply could not be on sight of a plain grammatical contradiction. What is not cannot be said to be. For Parmenides, true being is thus a kind of monadic constant. Any perception of change does not really exist, for every change involves a movement from non-being to being. The ghost of Parmenides has haunted all subsequent Greek philosophers, in the Republic, Plato's allegory of the cave is one of the best-known examples of a philosopher's attempt to grapple with the question of being, the question, that is, of what really exists. For Plato, only the forms, especially the good, truly exist. Everything else is just a distorted image of their being. Like shadows cast on a wall, this world, the one we experience here and now through, through our senses immediately, does not exist in the true sense of that word as the forms exist. Being, therefore, is an equivocal concept, or as Aristotle would later clarify, a homonym which applies to each of its subjects, albeit with some core dependence. In the Islamic tradition, the question of being has an organic, existential focus. The Quran, for instance, in a number of its verses, encourages the believer to see beyond the ephemeral world. And in the sayings of the Prophet and the Shi'i Imams, there is much to point a Muslim toward the perennial concern of finding out what it is that is fundamentally real. One tradition has the Prophet saying, O oh Lord, show me things as they truly are. And there's a typo in the Arabic for all of those of you who can... There be an edge there. That's right. It should say, Allahumma arinil ashiya kama hiya. Not yeh. Um, so... Two things are especially important and significant about this hadith. From it, one infers an allusion 
not only to the goal that is sought, but also the matter of the best method one ought to employ in seeking that goal. The goal is to have knowledge of things as they truly are, al-ashya kama here, a revelatory confirmation that beyond the phenomenological experience lies something that has true being. Second, the not insignificant remark, uh, arini, uh, which in Arabic means show me, has a certain implication for the kind of knowledge that is being sought in this pursuit, which on prima facie reading would imply an act of unveiling, a witnessing that God confers on certain individuals. It could be said that everything about Sufism is summarized in this hadith, The Sufi is someone who desires to see that which truly is. From the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic to the cave on Mount Hero where the Prophet spent many nights in meditation, one traces a perennial concern, a concern that would shape the development of Islamic intellectual thought in profound ways. The early Islamic tradition gave rise to several distinct categories of people in terms of the emphasis and priority they gave to certain epistemologies in this quest for being. Two of the most important groups were the Sufis and the philosopher. The Sufis, it could be argued, inherited the practical wisdom of the prophet, whereas the peripatetic philosopher, the philosophers, inherited the theoretical wisdom of the prophet, couched in the terminology of their Greek ancestors. Two paths were thus laid out within the early Islamic tradition the way of the heart and the way of the intellect. And it is in these two different epistemologies that one sees the difference between a mystic and a philosopher in Islam. The Sufi who lived during the early centuries had a uniquely organic concept of his goal. He did not need for his purposes a philosophically worked out metaphysics or a terminology of the different orders of being. In fact, throughout its history the role of doctrine and concept has had a largely peripheral place in Sufism. Of far greater importance to the Sufi tradition is its method, the doing, the acting out of God's law and will, the sharia, and the inner refinement and purification of one's inner and base self, the tariqah. Existence and being were thus initially of concern to the philosopher. The Sufis initially warded off attempts, therefore, to mix their wisdom with falsifah. But from around the 12th century onwards, they followed in their desire to document their findings in a language congenial to their intellectual rivals. At a certain point in, the history, in their history, the question of being, or wujud, as it is known in the Islamic tradition, became a hallmark of the metaphysical worldview of at least one brand of Sufism that has come to be known as doctrinal or theoretical Sufism. This label is reserved almost exclusively to the philosoph- for, for the philosophical mysticism of the great Andalusian mystic Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, a mysticism that the later tradition referred to as Wahdat al-Wujud or the unity of being. From Ibn Arabi's time, the quest for being can be epitomized as a discord between two great sheikhs of Islam, the Sheikh al-Ra'is Ibn Sina, the philosopher of being, and a Sheikh al-Akbar ibn Arabi, the mystic of being. The power and influence exerted, exerted by each of these giants can be seen in the fact that neither of, the great, neither of these great thinkers was dispensed with by the later Islamic tradition. 
The way that Muslims and Islam dealt with their respective ideas was to carve out a path that led to their eventual synthesis. This is evinced by the fact that from the 13th century onwards, there was a growing class of individuals who were immersed in both the theoretical wisdom of philosophy and the existential wisdom of Sufism. Ibn Arabi's influence on the course of Islamic philosophy is so significant that one can make virtually no sense of the meaning and role of post-Akbarian philosophy without acknowledging the impact of his ideas. Today I'd like to look at an early example of this cross-fertilization that began in the 13th century by looking at the Murasalat, the correspondences between Nasir al-Din al-Tusi, the great Avicennan philosopher, and Sadr al-Din al-Qunawi, the inheritor and popularizer of Ibn Arabi. It is really from these exchanges and their reception that the seed of Ibn Sina's philosophy is watered with the mysticism of Ibn Arabi, whose fruits are fully ripe by the time one reaches the schools of later Safavid philosopher mystics such as uh, Mullah Sadra. Scholars in the West have known about the correspondences between Qunawi and Tusi for at least half a century, and I shall take as my point of departure uh, a comment by Professor William Chittick at the end of his article in which he writes, quote, such a short summary cannot begin to do justice to the complexity and subtlety of the discussions, end quote. For the purpose of this morning's presentation and in, keep, and in keeping with the theme of the symposium, I would like to discuss one of the salient topics in this exchange, the question of knowledge, ma'rifah, ilm, being, wujud, and its realization, tahqiq or tahqqq. A triad whose interrelatedness is really at the heart of Qunawi's letters to Tusi. Due to the limits of time, I will concentrate uh, throughout on Qunawi's comments, although it should be said that what Tusi has to say as well is very important. Uh, like many individuals, uh, Qunawi has a penchant for classifications. His classification of the different kinds of knowledge, which appears at the end of his first treatise, the Risalat al Mufsiha, is highly significant. Qunawi presents a triad in the classification of knowledge that is of central importance to his philosophy. And this is the left-hand side. Ordered hierarchically, these are ilmul yaqeen, the knowledge of certainty, aynul yaqeen, the eye of certainty, and haqqul yaqeen, the truth of certainty. I, I think it was Rumi, but I, I could be mistaken, someone can correct me, who gives a nice illustration of what these three different levels of knowledge uh, mean. Um, if it, if it is Rumi, he gives the example of, of a fire. If someone tells you there's a fire outside this building, then you have knowledge that there's a fire. It's, it's something you've heard, and that's al yaqeen. If then you venture outside and you see with your eyes, well, there, yes, there is a fire there. That's, that's ayn al-yaqeen. That's the, the eye of certainty. But the hearing and the seeing could all be an illusion. It's really when you touch the fire and you, you get burnt that you know that, yes, there really is a fire there. And that's, that's haqqul yaqeen. And these three levels of knowledge, they're actually levels of being. And hopefully that becomes clear later on. Hunawi's uh, references to these, dis- these distinctions and stages, maratib of knowledge, gives the impression that spiritual realization is a gradual process. One has to move between the different ranks of knowledge to higher orders of actualization until one arrives at the final and highest station of knowledge, the level of the truth of certainty, where the distinction between the knower and the known no longer applies. It is perhaps with this distinction in mind that Qunui begins his treatise, 
this time with another classification of the different ranks of human beings, and that's the right-hand side. And he, he, he divides these into three categorical tropes. He calls these the upper, the medial, and the lower classes of mankind. A defining property of the lofty class at the bottom, or the top, as it were, um, is that they, quote, pursue knowledge of the true realities of things. Talab ma'rifat al-haqa'iq al-umur ala ma'hiya In other words, the pursuit and knowledge of being that which is really real is a trait belonging to lofty men and women. In his early remarks, and especially in the classifications he introduces, it is clear that Kunui supposes an interwoven relationship between knowledge, ma'rifah, and being, haqa'iq al-umur, or wujud. His presentation of the connection between the nature of man's reflective intellect and the kinds of object that it is capable of conceiving is a powerful explication of the overlapping significance between epistemology and ontology. His explanation has all the ingredients of an introductory text on a Sufi metaphysics of knowledge. In his views, Kunui typifies the general epistemology of Sufism and reifies the difference between philosophers and mystics along traditional lines. And yet, in his exposition of the metaphysics of knowledge, in the philosophical terminology of his rivals, he adds a new chapter in the history of Sufism itself, one that has very few precedents. The philosophical tenor of Sufi concepts is probably due to the fact that Qunawi writes with his interlocutor in mind, Tusi and other peripatetic philosophers, but also because of the common concern about the concept and reality of existence that was being shared among philosophers, mystics, theologians uh, during the latter periods of the 13th century. Qunawi's major concern at the heart of the correspondences is whether the philosopher's path arrives at the goal that it seeks at the knowledge of being qua being, al-mawjud bima huwa mawjud. What follows in Kunui's account is a wonderfully systematic description of the precepts and suppositions of Sufism, and it might be said one of the clearest critiques of the philosopher's, philosopher's path of, of knowledge in the idiom and terminology of their own discipline. Like his predecessors Ghazali, Suhrawardi, and of course Ibn Arabi, the, imp- the impact of Kunui's criticisms of falsafah had a resounding impact on the development of the philosophical tradition, one that was unable to dispense with certain critical themes within Sufism. Qunui's deconstruction of philosophy begins with his classification of the different kinds of being there are as regards the possibility of their knowledge. Belonging to the first category are all those things in whose nature it is that they are capable of being known through man's unaided intellect. The ontological level that such entities belong to, belongs, belong to permits that they are capable of being known through the natural faculties and organs that man possesses. But this is not just the realm of physical objects, for in the case of non-perceptible beings such as God, whose existence man knows at one degree, is, it is the reflective and discursive intellect that enables human beings to know such realities. In the second category belongs all those things whose nature is precisely the opposite. They are not capable of being perceived empirically or intelligibly. Hence, they cannot be known through the sense organs and neither are they objects of thinking or reflection. Beings in this category cannot be known through the unaided intellect of human beings. For example, the knowledge of God's essence, says Khunui, or the proper nature of his names, attributes and the manner of their relation to his essence are totally outside the reach of the human intellect. Only through unveiling, kashf, 
that is to say an immediate witnessing, mushahada, and tasting the dhawq of their truths and seeing with the eye of certainty, is it possible to arrive at the knowledge of such matters? In both categories, there is a clear relation of knowledge and being. It is this aspect of Kunui's exposition that demonstrates his acquaintance with philosophy. Both Kunui and Tusi believe that in every act of knowing, there is an existent entity, mojud, that is being known. Indeed, one of the questions in the correspondences deals directly with this problem. Namely, is that which is known a being even if it does not have extra mental existence? Al-wujud fil If so, how exactly can it be said to exist? An example would be the mythical unicorn. We can talk about unicorns, but they don't exist. So do they exist? Um, Tusi's response to these questions is illustrative of a highly significant development in the Avicenna philosophical tradition, notably in its elaboration of a realm of being known as mental being, al-wujud al-aqli. The concept has meaningful overlap with other Sufi ideas. In the peripatetic tradition, the the parallelism between knowledge and being is taken as a proof of of, of the fact that there is such a thing as absolute being. This is obvious in the philosophical sumai of philosophers in the school of Maraga. Um, in the Fusul, Tusi begins what is a text supposedly in theology with the remark, whoever conceives an object of thought is at first hand aware of his own being, for he knows necessarily that whatever is capable of thinking must exist, for that which does not exist cannot be conceived of. Moreover, since his being is necessary, so too must the absolute of being be necessary. For the whole that is necessary entails that each of its parts is also necessary. Tusi's remarks can be taken as a kind of philosophical commentary on the famous hadith, Man arafa nafsahu faqad arafa rabba, he who knows himself knows his Lord. And God for the philosophers is the God of being, the wajib al-wujud. The Neoplatonists, whose philosophy has left an indelible imprint on Islamic philosophy, argue that knowledge itself is a principle of being, since in the act of knowing itself, the first principle emanates the first intellect, the first being. And a similar kind of cosmology is true of the Sufis as well. For in the hadith of the hidden treasure, God says, I desired to be known, I was a hidden treasure and I desired to be known. So I created the cosmos. Even here at the heart of Sufism, God's self-knowledge, that's everything before the comma, uh, is a principle of being and existence. That's everything after the comma. The relation between knowledge and being is therefore reflexive. Being must be endowed with consciousness, self-knowledge, and inasmuch as whatever has existence it must have as one of its properties the capacity of being known. The relationship between metaphysics and spiritual realization, in other words, between wujud and ma'rif and being and knowledge, is of fundamental importance, especially as regards man's knowledge of God. This, is, this, is, this fundamentality is so critical that throughout the correspondences, Qunui employs the phrase ma'rifatul haq, which in Arabic literally means knowledge of the true real. For in the Islamic tradition, the name of God, Al-Haq, has the connotation of both truth and reality. 
Thus being that which is true and real in the absolute sense, the knowledge of God, ma'rifatul haq, is the noblest object of knowledge and the highest goal in spiritual realization. And accordingly, the science of which this object is its goal is ipso facto the most noble of sciences. Predictably for Qunui, that science is not falsifa, for it is not in the ontological fabric of man's being that he be capable of knowing such sublime things as the essence of God. This, however, is not to be interpreted as an admonition for the abandonment of the intellect. It is precisely for the brand of Sufism that Qunui champions an intellectualism of a supraconscious kind, one that sees in the intellect with a capital I a higher epistemological plane for the realization of nobler ontological truths than what is achievable by the intellect with a small I. To switch on, as it were, the cosmological dimension of man's intellect, one is required, according to Qunui, to embark on the Sufi path of knowledge, to exert much effort in self-purification and to rely ultimately on the conferral of God's grace. For in the words of the Quran, so fear Allah, for it is God that teaches you, literally gives you knowledge. Indeed, what Qunavi is at pains to convince his reader, the, philosophy, the philosopher Tusi, is precisely the ontological poverty of the kind of intellect he and the peripatetics take as their guide and tool in the pursuit of being. Qunavi writes... Every man of insight knows that human reflective thinking falls short in its knowledge of the true reality of these matters, especially as regards the knowledge of those things we have mentioned, such as the knowledge of the truth's attributes and the modality of their relation to him. Now, given that he, the sublime, is by knowledge and essence the very principle and comprehensive referent of the attributes, this entails that the judgment of whatever is attributed to him be of such a nature that it is appropriately of a universal and comprehensive character. But the intellection of the truth's attributes in man's reflective thinking is impossible as regards the absolute being. For no matter what the human being conceives at the level of thinking by way of his discursive capacity, it is always something entified, muta'ayyan, and delimited, muta'ayyad, and there is no doubt that the truth as regards his essence and attributes and names is not like this. That is to say, his identification in himself or the identification of his attributes are not additional to him, nor are they attached one by one to his essence as those who rely on their minds and thinking suppose. So man's conception of these matters does not correlate with reality, with things as they really are. Khunui's dismissal of the philosopher's path is therefore based on an intricately woven discussion about the nature of knowledge, the intellect, and being. Added to this is an argument that hones in exactly on the human intellect and the difference between method and metaphysics. What man learns from his senses and acquires by his reasoning is by definition an entification, a delimitation of being, whereas God's essence is absolute and unlimited. Moreover, according to Qunavi, a natural result of the intellect's inability to appreciate the unity of being is its proclivity for seeing things in terms of their difference and disunity. Our knowledge of the world is essentially an exercise in cutting up existence in order to delimit quiddities, essences, to see things that are presumed to have an independent ontological subsistence. 
This goes totally against the grain of Khunui's ontology, where being takes precedence over essence. In the case of God, who is the underlying principle of all essence, uh, existence and being, what man requires is precisely the opposite, an intellectual lens that allows him to see the unity and wholeness of being in the very entifications that lie before him. For this reason, argues Khunui, man will never know the proper relation of God's attributes and his names, let alone his essence. Only a small elect class of human beings that God has chosen for himself has such an awareness of the profundity of being according to Khunavi. They are, in Khunavi's classification, the men and women who belong to the lofty class, who participate with the prophets in the source and origin of their knowledge, which is none other than God himself, the very center of their own being. The aim of Khunui's first treatise is simply to lock firmly the door of any alternative epistemology, especially the one proposed by the philosophers. And so in their terms he goes on to explain why the intellect falls short in its quest for true being. He writes, thinking is a partial faculty of the human soul. Being such, man is not able to conceive anything except that it is particular just like it, the, the faculty of the soul. For the verifiers, the muhaqqiqun among the folk of God and possessors of sound intellects have established that no thing can be conceived, truly speaking, by that which distinguishes it. And no thing can be affected by that which is its opposite or contradictory. Um, he goes on further to say many more interesting things, but I'm running out of time, so I'll try and uh, cut this, cut this uh, short. Um, the real problem at the heart of the debate between Unui and, philosopher, uh, and the philosopher Tusi is what's known as the problem of the unification of the knower and the known. Um, at the level of haqq al-yaqeen, that distinction disappears. And Ibn Sina does not accept the argument that there can be a unification between Noah and known. Interestingly, Tusi does concede to the argument in the correspondence. Khunui interprets this as a sign of the great philosopher conceding defeat. Philosophy, the intellectual pursuit of the true realities of things, has fallen short. For if what the philosopher seeks out to gain is the knowledge of being qua being, Ibn Sina himself argues that this is not possible. What Qunui has shown throughout these correspondences is that ultimately true being is known only to itself. Only in being's state of self-knowledge are the subject and object of knowledge unified. To have such profound knowledge as the, real, as the, as the knowledge of the reality of things requires that one has knowledge of being itself. For Qunui states, the knowledge of God is the principle for the knowledge of of everything else. Thank you very much. Thank you.